what is essentially an archaic value system which says those who hold property or wealth matter more than everyone else. It tells us, oh, oh, don't talk about caring about the environment or caring about workers. Those people are prey to the demagogues and the crazies who tell them, blame the immigrants, or, or they listen to Trump when Trump is manifestly nuts. I'm Kane Jackson, and this is Chasing Financial Equality, a show where we ask what's getting in the way of the equal opportunities that so many people have fought for. We speak to leading thinkers and a few familiar names and address the obstacles of yesterday that are standing in the way of progressive social policy today, all in pursuit of just one big question. What's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few of us can afford to live there? I'm joined today by Marjorie Kelly, a distinguished senior fellow from the Democracy Collaborative in the US. She's just released an incredible book. She was kind enough to send me a copy of in advance. The book's called Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. Marjorie lives with her wife in Salem, just outside of Boston, and is a specialist in companies with embedded social mission and equal ownership. She was the founder of the Business Ethics magazine, which she ran for 20 years, and she holds a Master of Journalism, which helps her cut to the core of some very big issues. Marjorie, welcome to Chasing Financial Equality, and congratulations on your book launch. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ken. I want to start with your story, but maybe not how most people would ordinarily ask that. I want to ask, how did you find yourself in this space caring about these things? I reached a point in my 30s, when I asked myself, what's worth doing with my life? I could have maybe gone back for a PhD or continued this publishing firm, but I thought, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be part of people working for change. If you want to make the biggest change in the world, it's business. I was working as a new projects director at a publishing company, and I was seeing a lot of new thinking in business coming up. South African divestment was happening. Business schools were starting to talk about ethics and the new kinds of management were being talked about. So I thought there seems to be something happening. This is not my father's business mentality. And I thought I want to be part of that. And that's when I started Business Ethics Magazine. It was about socially responsible business and investing. Put me in the middle of really wonderful community of people. I think the other day you said uh, it, you felt a little bit like a spy in the inner workings of business a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, I ran a small business for 20 years. That certainly taught me a lot. I spoke at a lot of business schools. And of course, I interviewed a lot of business people and heard their struggle to make business more responsible. So yeah, I, I feel like I understand business well. And I I have been spying inside there. You know, how do we turn this beat? Your book is the culmination of that work and yeah. it's, uh, it's wonderful. I've been speaking about these issues in Australia for only about five years, so I'm mm -hmm. relatively new uh, in comparison. Uh, what's interesting is that people almost always agree with me. Do you find that when you ha start having these conversations, everyone you're, you're chatting to or most of the people you're chatting to turn around and say, yeah, that's, that sounds right. I, I can get behind that. Most people, not all people, but <laughs> I do find a lot of agreement. Some people say, oh, all we need is better taxation, all we need is better social safety nets. Change needs to go deeper than that. Is there a common theme in the people who don't agree with you? I think what I hear is that the avenues of change we're pursuing now are the right ones. We right. don't need to change 
the governance of corporation or the DNA of investing. I think a lot of people don't really think about how to do that. Well, it sounds like a good idea when I propose it, but I'm not sure that uh, most people understand that that's really the nature of the real change that we need is in, is in yeah. investing. Few people seem to understand how to talk about these issues on their own. I think because the system well, we're a part of makes them out to be complex issues when really they're not all that complex. Yes, you're absolutely right. But I will say when I was at Business Ethics and I was reading and interviewing a lot of real visionaries. And it took me many years to see that really CEOs are not the problem uh, or they're only the presenting face of the problem, but the real power is in capital. The real power yeah. is behind the throne. Uh, you know, CEOs get paid to make shareholders rich and they become Absolutely. rich. If they succeed, if they fail, they get fired. And that was a, a profound learning for me. Last week, you sat down with Maureen Conway, the vice president of the Aspen Institute. Maureen oversees the Economics Opportunities Program. And she said that she's been working on economic opportunities as anti-poverty measures all of her professional life and speaks of the incredible work being done by thousands of organizations oh. all around the world who are committed to helping people earn a living wage and have access to economic opportunities. Oh. She noted almost with perhaps an air of sadness that stepping back after a long career, whilst those initiatives have made a real impact on individuals' lives, they've failed to solve where those issues arise from and that those problems are, in many cases, getting worse. And Maureen discussed your book as an important part of the puzzle, the, the missing link, if you will, in addressing the wealth gap, growing inequalities and poverty, which appear to be reaching further and further into a middle class that hasn't had to deal with it before. I'm wondering, can we start by talking about some of the issues that make it almost impossible for ordinary people to get ahead today? Yeah, I think that's a critical topic. I talk in the book about the war on workers. And, and this is a unified phenomenon in business, which is about maximizing gains for capital. And that often means minimizing income for workers. In the book, Kane, I have a series of myths I pose are the really the operating systems of capitalism. And one of them is the myth of the income statement. And this is basic accounting statement that every corporation uses. You have money coming in, you have money going out. What's left over is, is profit. So embedded invisibly in the income statement is this myth that income to capital, which we call profit, must always be increased. And income to labor, which we call expense, must always be decreased. And so there is embedded in the very lens through which business sees the world is, is this mindset is embedded that says, we got to give more to capital, we got to give less to labor. And the more overblown the income to capital becomes, and financial assets are a hugely overblown sphere now, five times GDP, but it has to grow every year. And so how does it go? Well, it has to become more aggressive in throwing people off the bus, essentially. In the 80s, jobs were sent overseas. In the last decade or so, there's been a subcontracting move. Half the people at Google don't work 
for Google. They're subcontractors, people who are unpacking boxes at Walmart. They don't work for Walmart. They work for a trucking company. And that trucking company, in turn, uses a temp agency. And then there's gig work and there's contract part-time, all kinds of contingent work. And this is now 40% of the workforce. So full-time secure jobs are, are vanishing. And we don't even talk about this. We don't recognize that this phenomenon is happening. We don't recognize that this war on workers is a unified phenomenon. We think, oh, there's this trend and there's that trend, but really, really it, it works together. We really need to start recognizing this because let's look for an analogy at climate change. You know, there's forest fires, there's hurricanes, there's flooding. We now recognize that's part of the unified phenomenon of climate change. You have to connect the dots some. But when we see uh, wages flat and good jobs disappearing, you know, manufacturing sent overseas, fighting unions, Amazon you know, spent millions to fight a, a union there. We have to recognize this is a unified phenomenon and start to, start to talk about it. Speaking of phenomena, you mentioned the term polycrisis. Uh -huh. And I'm a big fan of polycrisis. We've been talking about the convergence of numerous extreme phenomena society is experiencing for the first time. Uh, and we've called that a mega phenomenon, but obviously polycrisis is a much better word. We've uh -huh. discussed how it includes broad topics such as wealth inequality, fear-based political polarization, the mm -hmm. climate emergency, and what we're calling the finance industry emergency. You would call that financialization. This polycrisis that we're experiencing, which mm -hmm. is obviously four crises that are intersecting, Right. How much of this overall polycrisis, you were talking about you know, these convergent themes that go together into each one of these, mm -hmm. how much of this overall polycrisis do you think the finance industry is responsible for? What I would say is the financialized economy is responsible for it. <clears throat> and the economy is really being controlled by finance. I posit that there are two deep underlying causes of the polycrisis. One is climate change or ecological overshoot in general. And the other is financialization or financialized economy. Society long ago democratized government. And democracy is a way to resolve disputes and make decisions without going to war every time you need to replace a leader, uh, as will happen under monarchy. We never democratized the economy or the property regime. Property is where power in the economy lies. And we have what is essentially an archaic value system, which says those who hold property or wealth matter more than everyone else. They deserve power. Uh, they deserve, for example, to have, they're the only ones who have a vote inside corporations. Workers are not considered members of the corporation in some odd kind of way. This algorithm that holds stock for 15 minutes is an insider. <laughs> And gets a vote. A worker who's, who goes there every every day for thirty years is is an outsider in that corporation. It's, you know, in your book, you write that morality in an economy is something we're taught is unneeded, irrelevant, and possibly embarrassing. Uh -huh. That's a bit of a problem when you consider that when we have a look at our financialized economy, which is really gatekept by the finance industry. Right. One of the unique characteristics of the finance industry, which few people stand back and and take stock of, is that. It's not just an industry. It's also a system and it is the world's largest system. So we've got this indus industry that overlays this system 
And you talk about how morality in that economic system is something we're taught is possibly embarrassing. How much of an issue do you think that really is in terms of the fact that it's not democratized? I think it's a huge issue because it silences us. It tells us, oh, oh, don't talk about caring about the environment or caring about workers. That's just, that's embarrassing. We don't talk about those things. We talk about hard things like numbers. And what this means is that really there's one value that capitalism cares about, and that's financial wealth. Everything is geared toward that. In fact, the only time you will find this system use the word sacred is when it comes to financial wealth or when it comes to fiduciary duty, which is the protection of financial wealth. On fiduciary duty, you say that the fact that we've got this financialized economy that is not democratic, we have no say in it. And when we do try and have a say in it, one of the defense lines that the CEOs or the companies come out with when it comes to accusations of damage being caused by their Mm -hmm. operations, whether that be climate, whether that be sociocultural, one of the defenses is, well, we have a fiduciary duty or responsibility to our shareholders to maximize profit. Now, you talk a lot about that in your book, and fiduciary duty is something I battle uh, all day, every day, and it's why the bedrock of our company is very different to most. But Uh fiduciary duty, to those that don't know, is it is ultimate responsibility of your shareholders to maximize capital, to grow profits and return uh, investment to them, essentially. So one of the things you talk about in relation to fiduciary duty is materiality. What is material Uh to Uh them? Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite chapters. Materiality is a concept of a corporate and financial accounting. And what it says is <clears throat> you must report on anything that's material. Now, material to an ordinary person means corporeal. It means physical. You kick a rock, it's material. It's physical. It's going to hurt your toe. <clears throat> in, in this crazy backward world of accounting, materiality means what affects shareholders, what affects capital. If you don't report a lawsuit that might threaten shareholder value, that's material. You're in trouble if you fail to report that to your shareholders. If what you're doing is going to damage the planet, if it's going to wreck employee lives, that's not material. This is really interesting. So if we have a look at materiality and we say that the lens through which we look at materiality is really narrow, it affects basically financial return to shareholders. Does this have a financial impact on a shareholder's decisions when investing or or their returns? If we have a look at where the world is in 2023, we're in this poly crisis, we're experiencing a climate emergency, we're experiencing fear-based political extremes. If we were to take a more broad view of materiality and expand out its scope it's fair to say that there would be a lot of companies don't you think that whilst they might be maximizing their returns to their shareholders they're essentially harming the world that their shareholders live in now that might be material to some depending on your perspective what do you think about that i think the most dramatic example of this came is is oil companies so exxon we live in a world that says exxon's First and essential only duty is to maximize returns to shareholders, the wealthy. If it destroys the planet in the process, hey, that's no problem. That's the essence of the insanity that this has led us to. 
Absolutely. And given that the, the fiduciary duty is to the owners of those companies, there are some figures that say that 90% of the world's shares are held by the world's richest 5% of people. So we've yeah. got the largest companies in the world who have a fiduciary duty essentially to 5% of the population. And they don't have this broader view of what's material to those people in the context of the climate emergency, which they are obviously contributing to quite significantly. And that's a massive problem. I think that ties into this overall view that we forget that economics, which is the underpinnings of business, economics is a social science. I think people forget that, that, you know, our, our economy should support society, not extract from it to benefit a few people. But right. We've got this financialized economy that we all don't get a say in because we only 5% really own it. And it has a duty to those 5% and the industry doesn't think it's material that, that it's just destroying the planet. And so right. we don't really have a lot of say, do we? What we're up against is a system that's not designed to be changed. It's pre-democratic. We're accustomed to democracy, which has all kinds of levers that we can move, you know, elections and courts and things like that. But before democracy, you, you had aristocracy and monarchy, and those were designed to be eternal. And certain people had power and no one else did. That's what we have in our economy. It's that same mindset. If we have a look at the growth of the, the finance industry, it's grown 300% since 1978. And in 1978, the finance industry accounted for 8.3% of global GDP. In 2023, it accounts for 25%. The UK's top financial regulator in 2010 was a chap by the name of Lord Adair Turner. And he said, there is no proof that the growth of the industry has grown the broader economy, but there is plenty of evidence to suggest that it extracts rent from it. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great that we're hearing that. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. I think there there was a time when I think you go and get a loan to start a business or buy a house that, you know, that's okay. But when you get to the point where the financial industry, where financial assets are five times GDP, that's something else. That's an extractive economy. It's become damaging. You speak about in your book that there's been an increase in the call it 20 years of companies who have head of ethics investment in uh -huh. esg uh -huh. all these sorts of things the themes around projecting outwardly to the public and your shareholders that you are acting ethically and that that is your focus that's been improving and, ch and, and changing quite significantly over time why aren't we seeing a positive impact from all of this focus on ethics that's a really key question. And the reason is that this work fails to touch the essence of the system. It basically says we can achieve maximum profits and have ecological benefits. Well, maybe not. Certainly Exxon can't. And so we have failed to say, look, we don't just want these verbal commitments from companies that we're gonna we're gonna be socially responsible. We want people on boards. We want workers to own the company. We want a legal obligation to serve a broader group of stakeholders, to serve the public good. We need to change fiduciary duties, change corporate governance, change who owns corporations. That's very different than just the, the kind of very soft verbal commitments that we're really seeing out there. You talk a lot about employees and workers owning the, the companies that, that they work for. Mm -hmm. Can you talk more about why that's so important and maybe point to some of the better examples that you've experienced of that? Sure. 
One of the things I talked about in an earlier book, Chain, Owning Our Future, is about there are, are five elements of ownership design. There's ownership, there's governance, there's purpose, and you know, networks and so on. But so it's more than just ownership, right? So you ideally you want companies that are owned by workers and that have a, a duty to serve the public good. And one of the best I love to point to is called Recology. This is in the Bay Area of, uh, in the U.S., San Francisco. It's over a billion dollars in revenue. It's 100% owned by workers. Its uh, stated purpose is a world without waste. This is a waste hauling and recycling company. And uh, it's considered a very good neighbor in, in that community. I love that. It, the garbage truck drivers make $100,000 a year because if, you, if you're not extracting a lot for shareholders, there's more to go around for workers. You talk about how property is a weapon. Um, now, if we consider owning property, and we know that the poorest in society never own real estate. Um, people who recently immigrated to countries own less property than those mm -hmm. who've been here a long time. And we certainly know that those mm -hmm. who have accumulated property sooner rather than later have more of it later. If we have a look at employee ownership of, oh. let's say, the companies they're working for, do you think that, I guess, speaks into giving people ownership of property? Does that roll into the same thing? Well, you know, property originally meant land and housing, but then it broadened. You can have property in stocks or bonds. That's also considered your property. Property has broadened to become this very large phenomenon of what you own in an economy. And yes, I think workers owning a piece of where they work is an important part of the evolution that we need. Employee-owned companies in the U.S., workers will retire with over $100,000 in wealth in that company. We also need communities controlling water, communities controlling forests. So worker ownership is one of the models, and there, there are others. Some things should be locked up in trust. No one should own them or be able to extract from them. There is a model called the community land trust, where the community owns the land, which never trades or sells, and then people own their homes on top of it. So it removes homes and land from the speculative market. So there are a variety of broad-based ownership models. And the reason that ownership as a topic is so important is obviously because our economy says that ownership, capital ownership, is where you get a vote. So ownership is power. It's also security. And those are the two things that most of us don't have and that we need. And if we're going to democratize our economy, we need to be secure. We need to have some assets. We need to have control over our own lives. And democratizing property is a key part of that. So anything really that any company, organization, or government can do to give people more ownership of the capital, be it grassroots up, to have a say in things, the better. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And we also need to turn and challenge the kind of devouring, extractive impulse of finance. I use the example of, of our CEO, Stephanie McHenry, at the Democracy Collaborative. <clears throat> she was the president of Shore Bank Cleveland and made good loans in disadvantaged neighborhoods. Leading up to 2008, predatory capital moved in and replaced those with predatory mortgages and basically just took the equity from people's homes, primarily uh, people of color, and almost wrecked the global economy. So yes, we need to build the positive. Yes, we need worker ownership and beneficial banks and so on. But we also need to stop the, uh, the devouring impulse of capital, which is just 
gobbling up what we build. If we look at the two crises that are very poignant for us, the climate crisis and this financialization crisis, and mm-hmm. do you think it's fair to call it a crisis? Oh, absolutely. I think it's an emergency. We have a saying, what's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few people can afford to live there? And I think if we have a look at who the climate emergency impacts and who the finance or financialization emergency impacts, it's pretty much the same people. One of the things that I find quite interesting about the solutions we're pursuing to climate change and the solutions we're pursuing to financialization, they're very different. We're seeing a lot of activity towards solving the climate crisis at the moment. We're, there's discussions in Australia at the moment around whether or not we'll be at net zero by 2030. Now, whether or not we will, there is this concerted effort. We've finally come together as a society to understand and accept that if we don't fix this climate emergency, we're all in a bit of trouble. Do you think we're going to fix the finance emergency? It's all the same emergency, Jane. We have to recognize that. We have an economy that doesn't allow us to make the proper decisions. It's on autopilot. It's on autopilot delivering higher gains to capital, which is the few. Uh, The climate emergency, I think, is a result of an economy that wants to grow forever. And mostly that growth impetus comes from capital. If If you're Share prices don't go, they, they collapse. The growth imperative is built in, into capital. And of course, the power is held by capital. There's a saying that um, most of us can imagine the end of the world more easily than we can imagine the end of capitalism. We are colonized by capitalism, by the mind of capital. We believe that it's the only system possible, that even imagining or dreaming of something else is futile. Why even bother? And that we need to overcome that uh, before we can make the change that we need. When you talk about capitalism, obviously the initial thought is, as an, an opposite is, is socialism. Where do you fit on that spectrum in terms of people who say, well, oh, you're just a socialist? Well, first of all, I reject the notion that our choices are binary, that it's either capitalism or socialism. Those are choices from 100, 200 years ago. We need something that's suited to the 21st century, and I call it a democratic economy. That's what we call it at at Democracy Collaborative. So let's just set aside those terms for a moment and say, what is it that we need? You can still have corporations. You can still have capital markets. You don't, that, but that doesn't make you a capitalist. Fenism is a system that's designed to benefit capital. It's designed to be biased toward capital. And we, that's what we don't need. That's what we have. And that's what we don't need. We can keep pieces of it that work because clearly there's a lot of them. But socialism, we need social safety nets. Yes, we need voice for labor, but we need public ownership of key resources. We need all of that. But we need to just aggregate these concepts of capitalism and socialism and say, what is it that actually works and that we want? And what is it that we want to get rid of? We want to get rid of this bias toward capital that says the whole thing exists to benefit capital and only capital has any voice or power. So to a layperson listening, how would you define, in, in I guess it's most simplest terms, what is a democratic economy? Yeah, a democratic economy is one where capital is reined in, where ownership is broadly held, where prosperity for all of us is the aim, and we're thriving on a livable planet. You know, I would say d- democratizing corporations, democratizing 
investments and capital and having a whole next system of capital. Those are two of the big pathways that we need. And when I say democratizing corporations, I would also say democratizing ownership more broadly. So Maslow is trying to build a new finance industry. How significant do you think it would be if each person on earth was entitled to one share in the financial system that we all use, and if that system ultimately served humanity and not just a handful of shareholders? Oh, I think it's a nice idea. We certainly need a financial industry. There's nothing wrong with that. And, and we all do need a stake in it. But you're right. We also need, it needs to serve the public good. And that needs to come before, before gains to capital. If you think that employee ownership of corporations and, and entities is important, which do you think it's fair to say that the next step of that is, is collective ownership from uh, the customer base more broadly? Oh, I think that's an important model. Well, you're talking about um, cooperative. We've got a lot of cooperatives or credit unions or, or mutual mm -hmm. banks in Australia, like you do in the US. They don't thrive. They certainly haven't thrived. There's been a lot of mergers. There's been a lot of shutdowns. There's been a lot of the decrease in the significance that they have in the market. Do you have any ideas why that might be? I think that most of us don't think of ownership as an avenue of social change. It's just not on most people's radar. We don't recognize that having a cooperative bank or a cooperative grocery store, that is a huge asset. That's a huge benefit to us. That's interesting because you know, Australia, just like America, we're, we're obsessed with the dream of buying property. Now, uh, well, you, you say people don't understand that collective ownership is this means of change, but we seem to have this innate understanding that property ownership is, is crucial to our yeah. future. But if we look at property more broadly, then surely collective ownership of the utilities, the systems, the industries that we use is the key to a successful future for more of us. Yes, it is. And I open the book by talking about water. In the U.S., 85% of Americans already get our water from a municipally owned utility. So these are cities that own and control these utilities. But people instinctively understand that water should be locally controlled. If there's a problem with your water, you want to call the mayor. You want to call somebody locally to fix it. You don't want some absentee corporation in charge of your water or charging you as much as they can get away with. I think water, I think healthcare. These we understand, these should be collectively run and owned. And so I think those are the sectors that we need to start with, Kane. If we want to drive this message, look, ownership really matters and it needs to be in broad hands. Water's an interesting one. I've used the water example in a different context many times before. I compare water and money quite frequently because mm -hmm. if we think about it, a liter of water is a liter of water. Whether I turn my tap on at my house or my friend's house, it's the okay. same liter of water. I have the same expectations yeah. over it. I use it the same. It is essentially yeah. this, this common utility that I, I need for my life. Now, yeah. I talk about money in the context of the finance industry mm -hmm. in really similar terms. And if you have a think about it, every financial product that is being sold, whether it's insurance, whether it's investing, whether it's a loan, every financial product being sold is selling money. Every water utility is selling water. Now, you have the similar expectation. You certainly measure the quality or the quantity in, in the exact same terms. Now, we have this general understanding that it is not efficient or advantageous in any way, shape or form for us to run more than one set of pipes to people's homes to deliver right. them water. 
Right. We understand that it is the most efficient way to run a system to have one set of pipes. If we have a look at the finance industry, when you buy insurance, whilst you might have different expectations, just as the way you use water, you will have different expectations of it. You might have a garden or you might not. When it comes to insurance, you measure the benefit of your car insurance in the same terms. You measure it in dollar values. And that is a really interesting comparison and brings us into a discussion about if we have a look at the finance industry, it's the only industry in the world that has an irreconcilable conflict because oh. it sells money. Now, it oh. has a fiduciary duty to its shareholders to return capital in the form of money. So it's selling money and its shareholders want money. But it's the only industry in the world that, that sells the very same thing that its shareholders want. And so it has to take from one side of that equation to give to the other. And so I've made the comparison before. Yeah. If there's a 7-Eleven and there's a nice cafe and they're sitting next to each other on a street and the 7-Eleven sells coffee for a dollar and the cafe sells it for five, you know the difference. Now, yeah. if the cafe wants to make more money, they can improve the quality <laughs> of their coffee, they can improve the service. If 7-Eleven wants to sell more, they can drop the price. But the, the metric for them to in increase the money they get is the coffee. And there's a whole bunch of different things that they can do to increase their profit or reduce their expenses. If their customers are, are measuring the benefit in the cost and their shareholders, let's say they, their shareholders all of a sudden started measuring the benefit of investing in those companies in coffee, then all of a sudden we have a problem. I think what I would say is that there are many technical questions when you're talking about an economy. There's a lot of things people don't understand, whether it's impact investing or employee ownership. So that technical knowledge, in a sense, is necessary. But I think we're not going to get to where we need to go just by tinkering with the technique of things. We need a unified movement. We need to understand that an economy is for all of us. It's not just for the wealthy few. And we need to see ourselves as a unified movement. You know, people of color and immigrants and workers who are being basically driven out of the economy, communities who need to control their own water. So there are so many of us who have this common interest, and we, we need to find ways to articulate this, Kane, and to come together and to recognize that we do have the power to build the economy that, that we want and that we need. Uh, and recognizing that the economy we have designed for the few is not legitimate, I think that's a start. A friend of mine says, there's so much talk. We need more action with mm -hmm. hindsight as a benefit, uh, looking at climate and, you know, from that moving through the discussion and talk phase to the action mm -hmm. phase, mm -hmm. where do you think we are on the journey of turning this discussion around financialization and this democratic economy opportunity uh, that we need to pursue uh, versus the action we, we might start to see on a large scale? I think that's a great question because we are pre-awareness. I'd say that's where we are. And you're absolutely right. Until we grasp the reality of climate change, how big it is, how terrifying it is, until we understood that with all of the talk and the little charts that Al Gore put up, none of us had the sense of emergency that has galvanized action. And we're not yet to that point with the problem of wealth supremacy or the financialized economy. We don't recognize that that's the problem. I agree. I agree 100%. No. We're definitely pre-awareness. One of the things that I also think is that at the moment we have a number of activist groups mm -hmm. uh, that have their specific focuses. Now, in mm -hmm. Australia, just like in the US at the moment, inflation is this huge issue. Now, we've got mm -hmm. growing 
conversation around renters in Australia. It's one of the first times, certainly in my lifetime, where I've experienced this this social narrative mm. around rent, renters' rights. Mm. I, I have never heard that in my 34-ish years. Mm-hmm. Never have I heard the volume about, hey, we're, we're renters. I can't afford to live in a one-bedroom flat even though I earn a full-time wage, that's not fair, that's not okay. So we've got this inflation-based conversation that focuses on people that are not super wealthy. And as you know, inflation affects people who don't hold property much more right. than, than the people who hold property. And that's, as you said, you know, property can be can be a weapon and it is. And if we have a look at these conversations, we've got the rental crowd, we've got the people that are talking about inflationary pressures from the cost of living, the cost of groceries, the cost of fuel, all these sorts of things. Then we've got people you know, there are other groups all around the world speaking about how capitalism is nearing its latest stages and these are all problems. And we've got people talking about climate. We've got people like yourself talking about a democratic economy. And you say we're pre-awareness. One of the things I think we're pre-awareness to is how all of these things are linked. Right. I think that's right. I think that's right. We understand with the climate emergency that it's not just one thing. It's not just coal power plants emitting CO2. It's other things as well. Everything is linked. It's the way we we produce single-use plastics and then discard them into our oceans. Mm -hmm. It's everything. And we understand that all of these causes, whilst there are a whole bunch of people all around the world who are focused on their niche aspect of those things, they understand that it is all part of this larger climate emergency. And we are pre-awareness to that in the financial space. Yes, we're in an economic emergency and we don't recognize that extraction by finance is really the root cause. Do you think largely the problem is the fact that the people who own most of the economy, the 90% of the world's shares being held mm-hmm. by the richest 5%, mm-hmm. do you think maybe the problem is more so that the 5% are very well aware that uh, we are in a, an economic emergency? It just so happens that that emergency doesn't affect them and in many cases makes their life better. I think it's also the 10%. It's not just the 5%, it's the 10% which are not wealthy people, but have a little bit of retirement savings. It's that the upper 10% are the ones who run the world, basically, the lawyers, the teachers, the, you know, the professors, the nonprofit executives. That group is doing okay. And so I think you're right. The emergency doesn't touch the people who really have the decision-making power. And I think that really limits us. We have to have compassion for the 90% who are not doing so well. I think that's the core difference is that the climate emergency affects everyone and it doesn't matter how rich you are. If the water rises and touches your house, you're going to get wet. It doesn't matter how much cash you've got. And that's the difference is the finance or the economic emergency that we're facing, it doesn't affect the people uh, at the top and they're the people that control everything. They have capital Property ownership is essentially mm-hmm. voting rights in, right. in the world that we live in. And, and the people who have the voting rights aren't affected by the emergency that's affecting everyone else. That's well said, King. Mm-hmm. That's very well said. You know, one of the things that bothers me a lot about people who are very loud about their uh, climate activism, the necessity they speak to when it comes to fixing the climate mm-hmm. emergency. Mm-hmm. These people, especially Australia, but all around the world, are are often very wealthy people. But if we have a look at the impact of climate on the people, let's say the bottom 90%, which is a real shame when you're speaking about any 90% as a bottom. But but if you look at the effect of climate on those 90%, the effects are very similar to the economic emergency we're facing. And yet the people who are talking about the solutions as benefiting all of us are kind of ignoring that 
there's still this other suite of problems that we're all mm. going to be facing. And again, coming back to that saying, what's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few of us can afford to live there? We've got all these people saying, we've got to change this. We've got to fix climate. We've got to fix this problem. It's not negotiable. There, there's no, We don't have time anymore. And yet almost none of those same people saying, hang on a minute, what's the point of this? for the world, for society, for 90% of the population, if we don't address the economic emergency? Yeah, I think the economic emergency also affects all of us in the same way that climate does. And one of the big ways is the destruction of democracy. We have lost good jobs. We've lost, we've destroyed reliable jobs. And so we have a disaffected white working class in the U.S., I'm speaking. And those people are prey to the demagogues and the crazies who tell them, blame the immigrants or, you know, what, whatever. And, or they listen to Trump when Trump is manifestly nuts. And so the loss of democracy, and which of course is funded by a few plutocrats, a few billionaires who are funneling in the dark money that's really coming up with these crazy ideas like let's destroy democracy. So it's no, it's not as though the 10% are going to be fat and happy and just sail into the future with no problem. That's not going to happen. Our society so, is at crisis levels on so many levels, and it, it affects all of us. So we really do need to fix this economic crisis, this economic emergency, if we want to save this version of democracy that most of us only really remember. And I'm not afraid to say I am relatively quite young, mm. but democracy isn't what it used to be. We are seeing a departure from the healthy debate that democracy requires to flourish. Mm -hmm. We have these political extremes that are probably being caused, no, absolutely being caused by fear. And uh -huh. we have this fear as a result of uncertainty, inflation. My generation was the first generation in history that when polled said they were less hopeful mm -hmm. about the future than the present. Every other generation in history, when asked at age 20 or whatever it might be, hey, how do you feel about the future? They always said they were more hopeful. It's going to be better than it is now. My life, my, my experience of the world, it'll be better. I will have learnt. I will have grown. I will have, I'll be happier. I, I'm more hopeful for the future. My generation was the first one that said, no, I'm, I don't think that's the case. In five years' time, I don't think I'll be better off than I am now. And I think if we don't start to look at Perhaps the climate crisis, the, you know, the cost of living crisis, the democratic crisis as one and the same of this economic crisis, we're not yeah. going to solve any of them. Yeah, I think that's right. And progressives need to unify around this understanding and, and a vision of the kind of society that we need. Conservatives are pretty united. They want strong men in power. They want democracy destroyed. They want women in the homes. They want people of color to be kept down and they want the wealthy to have all the wealth. <laughs> the conservative agenda we know pretty well. Progressives, we're not as united around our agenda because I, because I think we don't recognize the nature of the problem. And I think that's a good place to start. One of my, one of my heroes, uh, Urvashi Vaid, said that the progressive social policies of the 70s and 80s didn't fail. They succeeded. Hmm. You know, they succeeded in giving queer people more rights or equal rights. Uh, they succeeded in giving African-Americans hmm. a, a place in society uh, after giving them the vote. What she said was that they didn't go far enough uh -huh. in creating economic systems that supported the advancements of those social policies. 
So we've yeah, still got the economic systems left over from before these times. And meanwhile, that economic system, the financial sphere of wealth has grown more and more bloated over time, which is a metric we don't even track. And yet it needs to keep growing. So the level of financial extraction has really increased. And we have never turned and addressed that. Social safety nets and power for labor and a few spheres of public ownership don't address the DNA of corporations and capital markets. And that's foreign territory to most leftists and progressives. As they say, let's have some worker co-ops. But there's about 400 worker co-ops in the U.S. And most of them have about two workers. <laughs> so that, that <laughs> by itself is not the transformative agenda that we need. We need to know that world. And we need, that's the world we need to enter and change and claim it's our own. That brings us to the end of today's episode of Chasing Financial Equality. A massive thank you to Marjorie Kelly from the Democracy Collaborative for joining us today. If you want to get a copy of her latest book, you can do so from Amazon or Penguin Random House Publishers. It's called Wealth Supremacy, How the Extractive Economy and the Biased Rules of Capitalism Drive Today's Crises. Thanks again. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing at Maslow, head to our website, maslow.com.au. And that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember that sharing it on social media with your thoughts is a really valuable way to support us. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on your chosen podcast platform. These are the things that help us bring you the world's most impressive thinkers, and it helps us on our journey toward erasing financial inequality, one of humanity's greatest threats today.